And this moment of transition means the intimacy of living has to become the enlightenment of policymaking that serves the earth rather than supports the fossil empire. Welcome to episode 8 of What Comes After, What Comes Next with me, James Shaw, Minister for Climate Change and co-leader of the Green Party. My guest this week is one of the world's foremost thinkers on feminism, agricultural systems and the environment. Dr. Vandana Shiva is also the founder and director of Navdanya, a movement for biodiversity conservation and farmers' rights. In 1993, Dr. Shiva received the Right Livelihood Award, commonly known as the Alternative Nobel Prize. And in 2003, Time magazine identified her as an environmental hero. One of her most influential concepts is that of Earth democracy, where people are unified in their commitment to a just and ecologically sustainable world. I caught up with Dr. Shiva from her home in India, talked to her about the future of agriculture and the role of gender in environmental politics. I open by asking Dr. Shiva about a Mahatma Gandhi quote that she has used in her writing. In the resistance is built the creative construction of an alternative. In other words, putting up resistance is not just an act of saying no. It becomes part of a constructive effort to find a better alternative. As a politician, it doesn't often feel that way. So I asked Dr. Shiva what she thinks about when using that quote. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. My email is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Please also tell a friend about the show or give us a rating or a review as it will help others to discover the podcast. Now, here's my conversation with Dr. Vandana Shiva. You know, over... It's nearly five decades that I've uh, dedicated my life to protection of the earth and being an ecological activist, beginning with that amazing movement up in the mountains um, of Chipko, where women came out to say, you can't cut these trees. We will hug them. You'll have to kill us before you kill the tree. And of course, the movement was very inspired by Gandhi. But the... The time when all my thinking uh, on what do we do, how can we combine um, resistance to be a creative sowing of an alternative was when in 87, I heard the old chemical companies talk about how they wanted to own the seed, patent the seed, and the genetic engineering would be the route to patenting of seed. And uh, I, I remember with a lot of love that I've done a a tour in New Zealand because New Zealand has been GMO free. Uh, so thinking again about that inspiration from Gandhi, who in his time when we were governed by a empire of cotton, which was the British empire controlling 85% of the territories of the world. On the one hand, he took out a spinning wheel, but on the other hand, he did a boycott of factory-made clothing that was destroying our economy in India. So spinning with one hand and boycotting on the other. My Satyagraha, I call it the fight for truth, the truth of being on this beautiful planet 
along with all other beings, uh, I said, I'm going to save seed. The seed will be my spinning wheel. But I will also not accept GMOs without biosafety testing. I participated in the international laws. I was among the experts appointed by the UN to frame the biosafety framework, which became the Cartagena Protocol. We wrote laws in India. We wrote laws that recognized that we don't invent life. Man is just another member of the Earth family, not masters, conquerors, inventors. So through the saving of seed, became the resistance, but also framing laws. And in the process for 33 years, we have actually created the most amazing ecological alternative to industrial agriculture, which is responsible for 75% of the planetary ecological destruction. And if you add the packaging and nitrous oxides and food miles and add it all up and the food waste, it is 50% of the greenhouse gas emissions. So planetary destruction, but our health is being devastated with chronic diseases. And when chronic diseases combine with new infectious diseases that are also linked to this very invasive, heavy footprint, agribusiness system of invading into the Amazon to grow GMO soya, when every culture can grow its beans, every culture, can have its proteins. So that is the creative resistance. A no with one hand from your deepest conscience and your deepest knowledge, and with the other hand, so a seed. I, so that, that's interesting because I uh, am in a position where, you know, we're trying to slowly nudge New Zealand uh, towards a low-carbon economy, a low-carbon future, and... You know, there's broadly speaking, there's a lot of public support for that. Probably about three quarters of the population uh, want us to move forward um, at varying levels of speed. But of course, there are also people who are themselves resistant to that because they perceive that it'll lead to some loss of livelihood or income, um, or or even in some places like a, a sense of a loss of identity. You know, like. Um, if you're a coal miner and, and your dad was a coal miner and his dad was a coal miner, uh, for us to say, well, thanks, but we don't want your product anymore is, isn't is just, you know, a statement of consumer intent. It's it's sort of quite deeply personal saying we it, it sort of feels like we're saying we don't want you anymore. And, and, and that kind of creates a sense of resistance as well. So I... I was I was kind of looking at that quote from Gandhi from the other side of saying, well, um, when when people are resisting change that I think is necessary and important, how do I treat that as part of a creative process? But maybe I have that around the wrong way. No, 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 totally, uh, absolutely fits in. You're talking about how do you draw in the resistance to a new regenerative economy to participate in that regenerative economy. And I think there are only three ways. First, we do have to have a shift in worldview, not by putting people on the defensive, because for a short human time, just a few, you know, how much is it? A few hundred years, 100 years of oil, 200 years of coal. It's very short in the 
evolutionary life of the planet. And it's extremely short in the life of human cultures. Um, International Day of Cultural Diversity is back to back with the International Day of Biodiversity because we, you know, the Maori have shaped New Zealand to be the land it is. They are the ones who are recognizing that the rivers are living and the land is living and the earth is living. So I think the first is to be creative, beginning from school, for education for what I call earth democracy, that we are members of an earth family. But in the process, we do also need a shift in the mechanistic idea. Uh, I'm trained in quantum theory. Uh, Non-separation is my training. Mechanistic physics is about divide and fragment, but it is also about reduce. And of course, because we've been so concerned with the drilling of 600 million years of nature, fossilizing carbon, that carbon has become a kind of untouchable thing for us, and it's entered our vocabulary. But everything living is living carbon. So there's a green, the trees, the plants, the grasses, our bodies. Like we are 70% water, we are mainly carbon. So we've actually done a report, and that's the carbon cycle, how every step of life is the carbon cycle. Photosynthesis is the amazing system by which atmospheric carbon dioxide is taken by plants in their brilliance and converted into oxygen for us to breathe. That is why in India, the pranayam, the breathing is so important. And what you say while you do breathe deeply is, so hum, you are, therefore I am. And this is the earth family. So if we look at at the challenges of the planetary boundaries, the worst are species destruction and nitrogen, the rupture of the nitrogen boundary, which is the synthetic fertilizers. That's where most of the nitrogen emissions are coming from. But if you shift to the living carbon economy from a fossil carbon economy, and that's where the resistors of the fossil economy can be drawn in, to say, here is work. Here is work. Create nurseries for uh, planting forests. Create organic farms. Here is a transition support that the government will give you. Now, over 20 years, we've done a survey of the soils in my valley, in Dune Valley. And uh, this included farmers who've gone organic as well as our biodiversity conservation farm. And I hope at some time, people from New Zealand who want to make this transition, the resistors, can come and see that there is another way to live on this planet, another identity. I just want to share with you the data. We didn't expect it. The soil ecologists who did the work didn't expect it. Organic matter has gone down in chemical farms by 14%. It has gone up by 99% in organic farms. But even more surprising is nitrogen. It's gone down in farms fertilized by synthetic nitrogen fertilizer because you're killing the organisms that actually make the nitrogen. It's down 22%. It's up 100% in organic farms. But that's not all. In this corona epidemic, a lot of people are talking about the deficiency of zinc as amplifying the risks of mortality. Zinc has declined 37% in the chemical farms. It's increased 14% in the organic farms. Manganese 
very critical to attention deficit, 17% loss, 14% increase in organic farms. So I feel that as a government, as a minister, the worldview shift to being one planet and one humanity, then what are the ways we can shift our ways of work, our ways of thinking about science in an interconnected way. How do we bring it into the schools? But for those whose lives are at stake today, how do we make it exciting for them to be part of a new venture of regenerating the earth? Well, I mean, I'm fascinated by those results. And, and I, I know that there are um, a number of uh, farms in New Zealand who would describe themselves as regenerative. Um, I think though it's a term that's not hugely well understood. So um, I think we understand organics pretty well. Uh, there's been a you know a pretty strong tradition. It's a minority, but it's still a pretty strong tradition of organic farming in New Zealand. But this phrase of regenerative farming has sort of started to enter our language only in the last few years, it seems. But it is getting some currency. I'd be curious what you know you think it is. And how, how is it different from organic farming? Is it the same as organic farming or is it more expensive than ex organic farming? No. Uh, actually, on terms of principles, of the ecological principles, of uh, the diversity and law of return, which are the two principles that Albert Howard put in his book, Learning from Indian Peasants, in 1905, when he was sent to improve Indian agriculture, and he wrote the Agricultural Testament. He said, I can see these farms, they are as permanent as the ocean, as the prairie, as the forest. And they follow two principles. Never monocultures, always diversity, and never just extract and just take, give back. That's the law of return. So the, why was the regenerative movement necessary? For two reasons. First, in, industrial agriculture was attacking organic heavily, particularly beginning in the United States. And... Uh, Organic people were very feeling under assault. So we gave the idea, what you're doing is regenerating the earth. You are regenerating economies. You are regenerating health. And so a few of us got together, and I was part of the founding of the movement for regeneration and regeneration international. I'm part of the board of that. Um, why is organic... You know, organic is part of regeneration, but in this moment of human history, 2020, where on the one hand, we are locked down, and congratulations to New Zealand, everyone is saying, oh, women leaders can do it much better. Uh, uh, it does it, seem it's so. Interesting. Then because compassion, if it guides safety, then you don't have brutal ways of dealing with a virus. You have compassionate ways of dealing with a virus that also protects people's health. So we have really not just one epidemic, but we have the pandemic of cancer, of diabetes, of um, heart problems, of uh, obesity among children. So there's a health pandemic. Then, of course, the climate issue of a ruptured carbon and ruptured nitrogen cycle. Because these are systems are supposed to circulate. A living planet regulates her temperature, regulates the climate. That's why James Lovelock called her Gaia, the Greek goddess of the earth. When we rupture it and do a one-way taking of 600 million years of fossilized deposits of carbon, of course you're going to get a buildup. 
And while you're doing that, you're destroying the Earth's capacity to reabsorb. You're cutting the Amazon, burning it. You're destroying the Indonesian forest for palm oil. You are destroying the grasslands. Um, you're destroying the farms from being biodiverse to monoculture farms, which become net emitters. That's why it's extremely important to not just talk of carbon emissions. The three things we need to always think of is greenhouse gas emissions, including the nitrous, including the methane, which comes from factory farms, the absorption capacity of the earth, which is the regeneration part of the cycle. And third, which is the part that your concern is about, how can we bring hands to bear on this? So if you think of the fossil economy, what did they do? They cooked up, sadly, they cooked up science and said, reductionist mechanistic science is the only way to think and not know interconnections, not know the cycles of life, not low biodiversity. The second thing is they cooked up economics. They said productivity has only one input, labor. No, total output and total input, and therefore when you take energy into account, fossil systems are actually highly inefficient. In agriculture, I've done the calculations, 10 units of energy are taken to grow one unit of food. And if you make it all high rise and bulbs, and it'll be about a thousand units of energy to grow a lettuce. So the energy equation is what matters in productivity, not finding ways to get rid of farmers. So the transition of the coal miners through regeneration has to be to regenerate the land. Why did Roosevelt think of the New Deal on which all Green New Deals are based? There was a dust bowl because of the destruction of agricultural land and there was a Great Depression. He said, let me put the hands to healing the earth and he created the Conservation Corps. And I think it would be brilliant if New Zealand could begin this. So you're a small enough island to begin with a Conservation Corps as the transition of those in the extractive mining fossil economy to regenerating the earth. So it's regenerating our health. It's regenerating the broken cycles that are leading to climate change, but also desertification and regenerating culture. The culture that connects those who have been separated by colonialism. I think that is a very, very important moment for all of us, because if we don't heal, if we don't turn indigenous people to the teachers of how to manage the land, if Australia doesn't respect the Aboriginal knowledge of how to live 60,000 years on one continent, and if New Zealand doesn't turn to the Maori, then we'll have missed the boat. We'll, we will, um, we will fall for greenwash rather than regeneration. Regeneration is a process of living. The color green, I'm, you know, I've, I did a mining study in my valley and the miners had painted the rocks green to say, see, it's green, it's not white. So we can't afford greenwashing at this moment of extinction. You know, earlier you said that because you were trained as a physicist, you see the connections between things a quantum as a quantum physicist and you've also just said that indigenous cultures inherently see the connections between things 
and 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 so it's interesting to me that you come to the same point about the interconnectedness both via quantum physics and indigenous knowledge how do you see those two things relating is that coincidental that you see it through those two lenses well, you know in my life they have become like tributaries that joined I chose quantum theory because it was not satisfying to me to think of everything as immutable particles, dead, inert matter. I had grown up in the forest and had a different consciousness about the earth. But it's when I got involved with Chipko and saw the women could connect the trees to the rivers. And the foresters were still seeing them as timber mines. And bit by bit, when I did my study on the Green Revolution, because the state where I'd studied and done my MSc honors in physics in 73. It erupted in violence a decade later. And then I did a study for the United Nations called The Violence of the Green Revolution and understood how industrial agriculture had come from a very mechanistic mind. So over time, my, my respect for and gratitude for indigenous knowing uh, has grown as a scientist, but as also as an earth being. And I think there are two indicators that come in the way of government policymaking. One is this, and both sadly come from a warlike mentality. The word GDP was created during the war, how to mobilize resources for war. And my dear friend Marilyn Waring, who wrote the book, If Women Counted, showed that that thinking allows public money to go for fighter jets, but does not allow it to flow for taking care of children. And now you do have a new government, a very enlightened government, that can start recycling public resources for the regeneration of the economy, rather than GDP as an extractive mechanism of extraction from nature. You cut a forest, you have growth. You plant a tree, you don't have growth. Um, and at every level, you take money out of the social system and finance a, a coal mine, it counts as growth. But if you plant a nursery, an organic farm, it doesn't get counted. So we have to change the economic calculus. But the second very, very important part we have to change, I mentioned productivity. Linked to it is efficiency. So we think of the drilling of oil as a very efficient system. But if you add the full footprint of what does it do to the people where the oil was mined, what is it doing to my country while cyclones batter the Bay of Bengal and Orissa and again and again and again? These cyclones have increased three times in velocity over the last 30 years and become more frequent. We had cyclones before, but this intensification. So this efficiency of extraction cannot be the measure of economic efficiency or technological efficiency. The system as a whole, as a system of healing of the earth, of our economies, and of our societies and cultures, and while we do that, plant the seeds for a future. Because as I have learned from my culture, this earth is given for us all. If you take more than your share, you are stealing. You're either stealing from other beings or you're stealing from other people and the climate havoc is stealing from other people or you're stealing from the future. That is why the young people 
have been protesting uh, about the future. So the rights of nature, the rights of people, the rights of the future are one right in an interconnected world. Can you, did you in your valley with the farmers that you've been working with, was there resistance amongst those farmers moving from an industrial agriculture model to an organic or a regenerative model? You know, I, I live on the earth as a, as a pilgrim, as a guest, and I only work with communities when they invite us. Because the resistance comes when you come with your message, because they've had so many people come and bully them over so many years. And they say, first they came and said, use fertilizer. Now they say, don't use fertilizer. Whom are we to believe? What are we to believe? So what I wait for is when they feel the pinch. South India farmers felt the pinch when the water started to go scarce. And they said, we've got to bring back the seeds, which don't need too much water because chemical green revolution farming is for chemicals. And it's very thirsty. It uses 10 times more water to produce the same amount of food. So we went to Orissa with these cyclones. And then we saved all the climate resilient seeds. And I teams are already getting ready for distribution because the cyclones make salt water and we have salt tolerant seeds, flood tolerant seeds. Um, the only state where I have faced resistance and we have not been successful is the state of Punjab, which is where the green revolution was first introduced, which is where I first got concerned about industrial agriculture and have tried again and again and again. Poor Prince Charles has tried a Bhumi Vardhan program, because very high levels of suicide. Every third youth is a drug addict today. There's a film made on it, on Punjab Flies High. So we are, you know, Punjab, I think they've been so robbed of their autonomy of thinking, their ability to uh, know that they can solve their problems, that um, I haven't had success there. And uh, everywhere else we go, we work because people want to work with us. And every step, they begin with seed, go to regenerative organic farming. Before you know it, this year they are building regenerative economies. They ring me up and say, with the lockdown, everything stopped. Farmers couldn't sell what they'd grown. And if they'd only grown tomatoes to sell, they had a total loss. But we promote biodiversity. And they said our gardens, our biodiverse farms took care of our needs in this moment of crisis. I'm still trying to get over that number that you just told me about the number of people who are uh, drug addicted there. It, 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 it reminds me of something, I get, just coming back to this theme of interconnections between things, because one of the other things that you were talking about um, was the interconnectedness of the environment, of forests, of agriculture, and of people's health and well-being. Um, and the atmosphere, and, and the and atmosphere, and atmosphere. Yeah. So, and um, so, how do you uh, ensure that policy decisions? Because I know that you've worked with governments all over the world. Uh, how how do you ensure that policy decisions, and particularly now with regard to the economic recovery that we're all faced with, are focused on? that interconnectedness because governments, I have to say, are hard <laughs> to coordinate. You know, that we've got these departments and ministries and agencies, you've got different ministers responsible for different things. Um, and 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 at best, 
that you know in my experience which is limited to be fair uh you know they can coordinate around a few things but it, the kind of level of interconnectedness that you're describing seems kind of beyond the capacity of most governments i could imagine well uh i'll just give you one example you might remember the mad cow disease where they thought it was very efficient to first take dead sheep with scraping and feed them to cows and then take dead cows with the bad mad cow disease and feed them to other cows and make them mad and then they say oh we can turn it into burgers and they fed it to human beings till 12 people died of the mad cow disease and then there was a wake up in europe and of course there was a denial on the part of the industry that co- constantly said it's equivalent it's substantially equivalent in protein and iron and calcium till the scientists who did the work on the prion and got a nobel prize for it showed that it in terms of chemicals it was absolutely identical but because you were feeding a deformed diet one of the proteins was becoming deformed and now becoming a self infective agent not an external virus or bacteria but the protein itself was infecting and turning the cows mad and the human beings bad and then i remember renati kunas who was the minister of agriculture said we cannot keep agriculture as separate from food and people's health so they combined uh an environment so they combined in germany the environment the um, agriculture food and consumer affairs they still call it consumer affairs because bringing health in is a bit difficult and i think those are the kinds of convergences that the corona pandemic the lockdown the need for recovery it allows us to m- melt these frozen silos that worked in another period i'll call it the fossil period yeah in the fossil period fossilized minds work but in a regenerative period a regenerative mind must work and that means even at policy level we have to be innovative and i think a very good experiment would be what is it that we have to begin teaching children today for a future that is possible and worth having and therefore what are the convergences we need to make in education and those convergences then reflect into policy and if there's one country that can do it new zealand can no no pressure <laughs> <laughs> can i can i ask you you mentioned marilyn wearing uh, before who uh, i think is an extraordinary uh, woman um and in many ways i think was probably better known outside new zealand for her work uh then she was inside new zealand for many many years um although i think that that has changed in in recent years and you have described a lot of your work as ecofeminism and i wanted to ask you about again connections uh because we've got you know people who would describe themselves as feminists and people who would describe themselves as ecologists or environmentalists uh I'm not sure and there and there were of course there's also people who would describe themselves as ecofeminists um but in terms of the kind of broader population I'm not sure people see those connections how do you see the connections between environmentalism ecology on the one hand feminism on the other 
Um, so let me just begin with my love and friendship for Marilyn. We actually, you know, our books were being taught in the same universities at the same time. My book, Staying Alive, which came much more from the aspects of science and ecology. And I had written it because I was trying to understand how are women always rising to protect the earth? Why, why were the women rising to protect the forests of the Himalaya? And that's when I went into the history of science. And I found the book. I found Bacon. You know, Bacon was the chancellor of England, but also called the father of modern science. He actually wrote a book called The Masculine Birth of Time. And he talked about now becoming masters of nature. And to become masters of nature, you needed a whole different way, which became the mechanistic reductionist framework of knowledge. Uh, so for me, it was so clear this was consciously created in order to subjugate nature. But if you think of it just before that in early modern Europe, learned women were being burnt as witches. And then you add these various levels, you get a way of thinking that says disconnection is science and connectedness is not. Marilyn had done her work largely because she was fighting uh, to get more money for welfare and was leading the campaign against the whole nuclear-free New Zealand. Uh, and she wrote her book, If Women Counted. And that was being taught along with my book, Staying Alive. And then both of us were appointed on the board of a new organization we created globally called Women Environment Development Organization, an amazing congresswoman called Bella Absuk was the one who led it before the Earth Summit in Rio. Uh, and there's a part in Marilyn's book who wanted to understand why doesn't money come for things we need to do for society? And so she went to the roots of the systems of accounting that said, if you produce what you consume, you don't produce. So if you produce what you consume, it's a cycle. And that's a true circular economy, which is very fashionable as a word but it has to become practiced as an economy. So extraction then became the way you count growth. You know, if you circulate what you produce, local economies, good communities don't count as growing. Sucked out societies count as growing. And poor England, for a few years ago, when they were in crisis and their growth was collapsing, they said, we can increase our growth. If we count two sectors that are growing in this crisis as contributing to growth, drug addiction and prostitution. So if you look at any countries, and there are two amazing doctors, I can't remember their name in England, who over the 20 years of structural adjustments said something's going wrong. More and more people are coming in as with sickness. But most of these sicknesses are induced by a collapsing economy. So we have to see those connections. So what is ecofeminism? It's a simple recognition that the same mindset, and I name it as capitalist patriarchy, the convergence of the power of money and the power of patriarchy into one structure, saying nature is dead matter, women are passive second sex, men in power controlling nature, exploiting nature, beating up women in the household because of structural violence that sees 30% increase during lockdown, 
um, that recognition that not only is nature alive, women are alive, indigenous people have knowledge. So ecofeminism for me is not about women. Ecofeminism is getting out of the trap of thinking and living in ways that is destroying the earth, leaving more and more people into despair, poverty, hopelessness. When we can, just by shifting our thinking, as centered on the earth, on living processes, on interconnectedness, we can create new opportunities that are economic, political, and I have called this regeneration of a system earth democracy. And I talk of living economies rather than economies that destroy and living democracies as democracies of participation where people are able to say, I want organic or I don't want organic. I want my children to be able to learn about gardening in school. So those choices then deepen the, the fabric of society as a body politic. How do we induce a transition? Because, you know, what, what you're describing, and it's very attractive, uh, is obviously quite radically different from the way that the majority of the world operates today. You know, our societies and our economies are quite hardwired. Uh, and I know that the pandemic has shown actually just how fragile actually that system is, you know, these long supply chains with just-in-time delivery and, and so on, uh, when a pandemic strikes, really break down. And and the other thing, of course, that was squeezed a lot out of is our people. Uh, and uh, when something like a crisis hits, like the pandemic, then it, you know, it puts them in an extremely vulnerable position as well, because they're, they're only just kind of living on the edge at the moment. But it's still it's still quite a um, a significant shift that you're talking about. You're talking about you know biffing out GDP and replacing it with you know more uh, holistic way of viewing the world, reorganizing the tools of government and the economy. How how do, how do you get from where we are today to there? The reason those big ideas are important is because they have been used as the main justification to continue to do business as usual, when we know business as usual means extinction. And that's what the IPCC has warned us, 10 years of a shift. Uh, in terms of thinking, of course, the big ideas have to be there in the mind of every policymaker. But in terms of society, where the base starts to make the shift and invites a shift from policy, <laughs> we begin with the intimate. And the intimate is food. Even without any policymakers shifting, I get messages. I say, you were here four years ago and you said the most important thing to do is grow a garden. And that is what we are doing everywhere. And this recognition that you must be able to grow a garden, both because it makes you realize you are part of the earth, just that gardening phenomena is very different from a mining phenomena. It regenerates our oneness with the earth, but it makes you more food sovereign. You are not worried about broken ch chains. And the third is in your garden, you don't grow poisoned food. You grow nourishing food because you're growing it for yourself. Is this distance change is what has led to 
a very strange food model where we grow commodities at very high cost, high cost to the planet, high cost to the farmers, farmers getting indebted. And then we grow nutritionally empty commodities. 90% of the corn and soya goes for biofuel and animal feed, not to feed people. So it is not making sense as a system. It's a very broken system. So we begin with the intimate. Food is what makes you. Eating healthy becomes then part of a health recovery from the corona pandemic. And so while at the people level, we do awareness, at the policy level, we bring health and agriculture together. We bring agriculture and environment together because that same system, you know, one thing I learned from Gandhi is when he, when they laughed and said, how do you think a few pieces of wood will give you freedom? And he says, the thing with these few pieces of wood is any woman can make her own spinning wheel. And when every woman of India spins her own clock, that power is bigger than the power of the empire. So we have learned in the fossil empire to underestimate the power of the small multiplied manifold. Every large is many smalls. We as human beings, as macro mammals, we think we are just a shell. And sadly, you know, with the virus attacking us, that shell image has grown even more. But we are walking microbes. 90% of us are bacteria. Our gut, which transforms the food we grow into our body, our health, our enzymes, our brain, our blood, 60 trillion companions who are microbes are doing that work for us. And when chemicals assault our gut microbiome, we get all the chronic diseases, whether it be neurodegenerative diseases, or they be cancers, or they be diabetes, metabolic diseases. So I think it is really time to begin with what is it that people are looking for anyway, and link what they're looking for and willing to do to a bigger shift. So the personal transition for which people are ready into regional transitions and national transitions and a planetary transitions, nothing less than a planetary transition. And again, this is something I've learned in my 50 years. When you work in a mechanistic mode and you think of Hobbes, the image that all these little squeaky citizens have to be kept in control under a, or the strong hand, Everything becomes very difficult. But when you think that people are living, they're autonomous beings, they're independent beings, and I've just done a blog and I invite you to read it. It's on my webpage of Navdanya. And it's on the fact that Microsoft has been given a patent to mine our bodily data and turn us into users of the algorithms. So we are, our humanity and life and biology is being defined out of us. So it is a moment of a transition. And this moment of transition means the intimacy of living has to become the enlightenment of policymaking that serves the earth rather than supports the fossil empire be a few years more.
I'm really interested in in what you were saying there about this moment of transition, obviously, because we are uh, in this extraordinary global situation. Every country is dealing with it in its own way, and there are commonalities and there are differences, you know, obviously, between how how we're handling it. In New Zealand, obviously, we are a agricultural economy to a large extent, uh, and Tourism was a very big part of our economy until three months ago, and it's essentially been completely closed down. But of course, people still need to eat. Uh, and so um, the agricultural industry has kind of largely ticked along without you know, a, great, a great deal of uh, change. And that's a good thing because it means people get to eat. Farmers can continue to farm and you know do their business. And if you think about the economy, it's, you know, it's good that, <laughs> that there's still some activity there. <laughs> And it's an interesting notion that if you think about the recovery, that it is that actually you start with food. Um, I don't know if I'm just picking on that because I happen to be uh, a New Zealander um, who, you know, we're sort of surrounded with this conversation around food and agriculture all the time. But it's an interesting idea that the the recovery or the renewal that you're talking about would be led from our relationship with food. And all of the people I've talked to, nobody said that to me before. You know, I've kind of learned through living that uh, uh, food is the most important. I mean, I, when I was doing my physics, I remember I used to have a kettle of tea and I used to write my thesis, solve my problems. And I could live on tea for four days. And I thought, yeah, food, well, why do we need food? And now over these years of learning, I've realized that food is the connector the web of life is a food web. The ecological currency that flows through the microbes and the plants and the mammals and us and the atmosphere, that currency is food. And it's repairing the nutrient cycle is a climate solution. Repairing the nutrient cycle is regenerating the earth. Repairing the nutrient cycle is producing better food and repairing the nutrient cycle can be the biggest regenerative economy to deal with the multiple crises we are facing right now. Dr. Shiva, I know that you've been to New Zealand uh, and um, you know, you've talked about your relationship with Marilyn Waring, who is also a farmer. It's one of the things that she does, uh, which I've always found fascinating for someone who is an economist who was on our Reserve Bank board uh, at the same time uh, was running a, a sheep farm uh, in part of New Zealand. And I always like that kind of connection there. Uh, you've also done, a, a, obviously, a ton of work with farmers in India and in other countries around the world. And our farm systems are very different. So I'm curious about what you see ab about what what we can transfer and learn between, say, you know, a small farmer in um, rural India versus a, uh, it's still perhaps a family-owned farm, but very different farming system in, in New Zealand. Well, you know, as I'd mentioned earlier, Minister, I, because I'm trained in quantum theory, I always see interconnections, but I also always see process. And it isn't the case that the New Zealand farms were always large, they began as small farms. The Maoris 
farmed on a small scale, which is the scale of care. With fossil, you can expand your footprint. And that's why they use the measure of efficiency of how few farmers are on the land when the measure that we have evolved is care for the land. And, you know, what's measured is yield. What can you pull out of the land, that extractive system? And they said, no, that's a wrong measure because if food is about nourishing, then health per acre and nutrition per acre is the true measure. We should see how the land flourished we should see how the farmers flourish. So we do true cost accounting. And we are finding that industrial fossil agriculture is actually a losing game for most farmers. It would be in America, it would be in New Zealand, it'll be in Europe. Farmers are just going out. And now they're planning of farming without farmers so that they can have the next step of more energy intensity of farming with no people on the land. <coughs> And that, you know, sadly, India is being picked as the place to where we have the small farms. But, you know, how do you get rid of these small farms and farm with drones and spray Roundup? And these are my struggles today, both at the scientific level, but also at the level of working with our communities to make them strong. To say we don't want mega-sized farms through deceit, because in India we have laws on the land that doesn't allow destruction of small farms, but through contract farming, you could. So it doesn't matter where in the moment of history you are, small farms to big farms everywhere is the trend. But there is another trend. Young people everywhere want to farm. And when you talked about the tourism uh, collapse, I think it's extremely important to recognize that people within um, uh, New Zealand will still want to travel that those who have lost work could be part of a new economy of regeneration of the land through small farms. And that is one way where you can have very, very creative policy interventions of leasing. You know, I'm doing a dictionary of, of the economy because I'm finding words change meaning so fast. And when it's done, I'll be very happy to send it to you through Danny. Um, the word investment, never meant money. The word investment referred to making something beautiful. So making land beautiful is the way our indigenous people refer to farming. They don't talk about production. And what my research over these 35 years has shown me is you take care of the land as your first objective. Your food actually increases. When you squeeze products out of the land, your production decreases because you destroy the very capacity of the land to produce. So I feel the lessons are really lessons of ecology, lessons of interconnectedness, lessons of diversity. And our research has shown that the more intensive a system is in biodiversity, the more it produces even food for human beings and better food for human beings. So I think the shift in these indicators yield to nutrition per acre only uh, uh, measuring uh, the extracted economy and forgetting the footprint. Our, our assessment that was done with the Ministry of Envi Agriculture in India, $1.3 trillion of social and environmental destruction for chemical farming. And that doesn't add the health cost. You add that, it's about three or 3.5 trillion. 
And if you look at the world, what we have is a footprint that's much bigger than the actual economy that's being counted. So the full cost accounting. And the third, as I said, is we've got to start thinking of investment in terms of investment of people's times, of people's care, of people's knowledge, in terms of creating regeneration. Money must be a facilitator, a trigger, a catalyst, not the determinant to extract more money out of a system, because that will leave the earth poorer and people poorer everywhere and will be a block to the regeneration and recovery that is needed in these times of the corona pandemic. Can I return to something that you mentioned, a phrase that you've mentioned a couple of times? You talk about uh, an earth democracy, and and you, you've got a book on this, One Earth, One Humanity versus the 1%. What do you mean by earth democracy, for those who haven't read the book? Well, in, uh, the, the earth democracy grew out of uh, both activities on the ground, uh, because, you know, those were the days where the patents uh, you know, these companies wanted patents on everything and they were pirating our basmati. I'm from the very famous Dehradun Valley, which grows the Dehraduni basmati. And a company in Texas has patented it. And before that, the neem, a tree that controls pests, and I spread it in the country after the Bhopal disaster to say, we don't need pesticides that kill. Neem is a pest control agent. I said, no more Bhopals, let's plant a neem. And so all these biopiracies were happening and in the villages, people were organizing living democracies to say we are part of one earth democracy. And this is our Indian thinking anyway, Vasudeva, Kutumbakam, one earth family. But then we had Seattle and WTO rules were really destroying so much and citizens uh, joined and I'm part of the International Forum on Globalization and the Seattle WTO conference was shut down. And all the media would come and say, Oh, you anti-globalizers, you know what you're against, but you don't know what you're for. I said, well, we are against the idea that seed is an invention because we know we are for the living biodiversity. We are against dumping of bad food because we realize small farms produce more. So we know what we are for. And Earth Democracy became a book articulating what are we for? Who are we? We are Earth citizens. And what are we for? to create economies of life that serve the earth and create more prosperity and well-being for all. More food, higher incomes. Our farmers of Navdanya are earning 10 times more than the commodity-chasing farmers who chase after cash and the cash never comes to them. And the farmers were saying, I will work to care for the earth. I will save my seeds. I will grow food for health. They're actually earning 10 times more by not chasing the money, but doing the right thing. That is a democracy. That's quite inspiring. Uh, I, uh, I, I want to pick up on another thing. I will maybe tie, that, tie what you've just said in to something else that you referred to earlier about the New Deal uh, at the end of the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression, or, or the, you know, kind of got the world out of the Great Depression. And you mentioned this notion of a Green New Deal uh, and people have been pushing the idea of a Green New Deal, including people in my own party, uh, for about 12 years since the great financial crisis. People said, well, you know, what we want to do is recover via a Green New Deal. And we're working on elements of that. Uh, 
what I'm interested in is what's your take on it, and particularly when you talk about gender and the indigenous worldview. You know, it could it could be quite easy, I think, for uh, a green New Deal to be as mechanistic as an industrial New Deal. Actually, it has the risk of being even more mechanistic because uh, it has the risk of treating the, you know, if, if the older extractive economy was cut the trees, the new extractive economy of a version of the Green New Deal, there are many versions, because there are many versions of green, as you know, um, is, no, we will own the process of photosynthesis of the leaf, and we will financialize that, and we'll put that on Wall Street. So this, at the Rio Plus 20 summit in 2012, the big marches of the people were against this version of a green economy of financializing nature. And I think there is a new vocabulary being created for this. So, you know, tomorrow, um, on the 22nd of May is World Biodiversity Day. And the many, many uh, colors of green are, of course, uh, being articulated. So there are two languages that show the difference. I call the economy through which nature produces life, growth, soil fertility, manages the climate. I call it nature's economy. It is an economy because economy is derived from oikos, the same word from which ecology is derived. And according to Aristotle, oikonomia is the art of living. Crematistics is the art of money-making. And the reductionist mechanistic thought has made economy the art of money-making and the financialization of nature, which talks of nature as capital, as capital to be siphoned off again. So we have to start, I think any really deep new deal has to redefine our relationship with the earth not as one of mastery, not as one of separation, but one that recognizing we are part of the earth. And that's where the Maori become very, very important. The second part of any Green New Deal has to recognize that there were invisible economies that kept this whole edifice going. The work of the women is what has sustained it all. And we were always, you know, women will tell me, I don't work. I said, but you do. Oh, but you know, it doesn't count as work because the one dimensional job for which someone else pays to you is only uh, counted as work. So uh, women's invisible work, the invisible work of all of nature's organisms. I mean, the earthworm, look at the work it does. It's a dam builder. It's a fertilizer factory. It is aerating the soil. And it's a beautiful being. And Darwin said, when the history of humanity is written, we will recognize that the earthworm was the most important part of allowing humanity to live on this planet. So we've got to become humble about the earthworm. We become humble with respect to the bee. Every faith and every religion says, build your economies like the bee. The bee leaves the flower and the plant richer through pollination. It doesn't leave it poorer. 
but it becomes richer itself by coming away with the honey. Now, that is the mutuality that women's economies of care have practiced over millennia, even while they were not supposed to exist. Women have survived. What we need is to put the economy of care in as rigorous a platform as the economy of crematistics, of economy of extraction. And that's where women will come to the center, indigenous people will come to the center, nature will come to the center, not in an hierarchy of subjugation and exploitation, but in a new partnership of co-creation in a serious way and co-production. We are obviously thinking through pretty hard where to direct our energies as we try and rebuild after the shock that we've had from the pandemic crisis, as is everybody else in the world. And we know that every country has got its own circumstances and things that it needs to deal with. What would you say to the people of New Zealand at this particular moment in history as we work our way out the other side of this pandemic crisis? To the beautiful people of New Zealand on this very beautiful island in the beautiful sea, uh, I first send my love and my solidarity. And, uh, and I hope that out of the pandemic and the lockdown, a new coming together will happen. That the indigenous cultures of the Maoris who've been on that land forever, the new migrants from all the cultures of the world. You know, new Zealand has been a very welcoming country. In fact, one of my colleagues from the farm, the Deradun farm, is now in New Zealand. A bit of Navdania is in New Zealand because her husband was there and she has migrated. So you have the whole world converging and all of that richness of knowledge and culture and cultural diversity, along with all the people of New Zealand who've come at different stages of history. I hope together you will be able to create a New Zealand that is part of the Earth family, an Earth democracy practiced on a scale that is doable and with a leadership that has the will. Dr. Vandana Shiva, that's a fantastic place to leave it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Minister. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you to Dr. Shiva for joining me. Feel free to get in touch anytime. My email again is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Next week, I'll be speaking to the writer and environmental activist, George Monbiot. See you then. This podcast is authorised by me, James Shaw, List MP, Parliament Buildings, Wellington.